May it please the court. Counsel. Two appeals, two issues, same in each case, and I'm addressing the minimum base issue. Before I can talk about the minimum base, I need to describe the concept of the base amount in Minnesota's credit for increasing research. For increasing research. The purpose of the base amount is to set up a comparison with research in the past to be made with research currently. And the credit is actually a percentage of the excess of current research over the base amount, which reflects research in the past. The credit rewards increasing research, research over that which would normally be done. This is the incrementalism that the parties have, have spoken of in the briefs. And by reason of the operation of the formula, the comparison of the base amount to current research, and it's the excess, which is a percentage, the, the percentage of the excess yields the credit, you can see as the base amount goes up, the credit goes down. As the base amount goes down, the credit goes up. Our legislature adopted a definition of base amount from the similar federal credit for increasing research. And the minimum base amount issue is about what that definition is. The definition our legislature adopted is found in section 290.068 subdivision C, subdivision 2. I'm sorry, subdivision 2C. That can be seen on page 5 of our November 14, 2018 brief. And it says, base amount means base amount as defined in section 41C of the Internal Revenue Code. So that takes us to section 41C. That's also shown on page 5 of our November 14th brief. <clears throat> there you see the definition. C1 says the term base amount means the products of the fixed base percentage and the average annual gross receipts of the taxpayer for the four preceding years. The minimum base is in C2, and it says in no event shall the base amount be less than 50% of qualified research for the credit year. General Mills and IBM say that that minimum base, C2, is not in the definition. The state takes the opposite position. We say C1 is clearly the definition, and that everyone seems to agree with that, even the tax court, because it looks definitional. It uses the term means, it uses quote signs. And Council, by contrast... Um, there's no question that C1 is part of the definition, but the legislature didn't say in 290.068, subdivision 2C, it didn't say 41C1, it said 41C. If the legislature wanted the definition limited to 41C1, why didn't it say 41C1? I think the legislature saw the use of the term definition as sufficient to accomplish that. And I would point out, neither did the legislature say the definition contained in C1 and C2. So we're left back with the word definition. So does the definition of base amount incorporate the definition of fixed base percentage, which is found in 41C3? <clears throat> it does because that term is used in the definition of base amount in C1. So 
41C as the legislature <coughs> used it. Could, in the could I have the courts in, may I take a cough drop? Yes, I'm in absolutely. allergy season here and I'm plagued by tree pollen right at the moment. And if you need a break, make sure you just tell us. I'm um, fine. Okay. <coughs> so when the legislature used the term Section 41C of the Internal Revenue Code in, in the statute, the state statute, it was incorporating 41C1 and 40, at least 41C1 and 41C3, correct? Yes, it had to because C3 is a term used within C1. Did it, um, did it incorporate the entirety of 41C3, including subpart C dealing with a maximum fixed base percentage? It did. That's part of the definition uh, of fixed base percentage. Did it incorporate 41C4, which deals with election of alternative incremental credit? We think not. We asserted that at one point, but we So one's in, two's that. out, three's in, four's out. How about number five, election of alternative simplified credit? Is That's that out in? too. So how, do, how, how about six, consistent treatment of expenses required? Is that in the legislature's definition or not? It would seem to be a provision that has relevance to the C1 definition. So I would say it probably is. How about number seven, dealing with gross receipts? <clears throat> <laughs> is, that, is that in or out the legislature's definition of, or incorporation of 41C? Let me just take a look at C7 here. <clears throat> I would say that has to be in. So <clears throat> what's, what's the principle or rule of law whereby you infer from the legislature's reference to 41C that particular parts of 41C are incorporated and some are not. What's, what's the principle you're using here? Well, the terms in C1 implicate those others. C1 does not in any way mention C2. C2 stands apart. And I, I observe that unlike C1, it does not have the word means in it, which is the, rec which is the sign in the Internal Revenue Code that they're about to define a term, it is not in quotes. In fact, it's used that the term base amount is used in C2. You don't use a term in a, de in a definitional provision. It means it's already been defined by the time you get to C2. Because C2 is a different animal entirely. It's, it doesn't measure um, past <clears throat> research and compare it to current research it doesn't, ma it doesn't uh, measure the increase in research at all, which is the fundamental mechanism of the, of the credit. It's a limitation. It's a cap. It's one half of current research expenditures. The irony of the state, and there's nothing incremental about it. See, it, it, it doesn't reward incrementalism at all. And the irony of it is that it hits local companies who are already doing some significant research here the hardest, because when you have a lot of current research, that raises the minimum base amount up to the point where it governs. It governs when you compute the tax. That limitation applies. It is, doesn't make sense in terms of the economic development policy <clears throat> that the legislature had in mind. And that's what this is. So would you, would you conclude that the legislature's reference to 41C of the Internal Revenue Code is ambiguous because the legislature is unclear as to which 
subparts are incorporated and which are not? I don't think it's ambiguous at all. I think the use of the term definition signals the definition in C1. It's definitional. Means, quotes. I mean, C2 is something else. It's not definitional. The term base amount is used in, C in C2. If so it already, is ambiguous, what canons of construction help us resolve the ambiguity? If it is ambiguous, what canons of construction help us resolve the ambiguity? The fundamental uh, uh, rule of construction that the intention of the legislature should govern. And I, I would refer the court to some of the economic development cases of some years ago, the capital equipment cases. We, we mentioned those in our briefs to the tax court, where the court said, well, this, we will construe this statute in order to effectuate the legislature's intention to promote economic development. That's the lodestar rule of interpretation that I would suggest Can I to the follow court. follow up on that John, for two? So one point you said this hurts local companies. Does it hurt local companies more than non-local companies? It would. The minimum base hurts local companies more than non-local companies. Local companies who are doing significant research already in Minnesota, because the significant research in Minnesota exp expands what the minimum base is. See, the, the minimum well, but base... that's just because of the nature of the... It's a Minnesota R&D tax credit. It's, well, yes, it's, okay. a, it's the way and so, the credit and, operates. And then in terms of your <clears throat> intent of the legislature, isn't the intent of the federal legislation exactly the same thing, which is to increase economic development? Well, its intention is the same in a general sense, but you have to take into account that the Minnesota statute is not like the federal statute. Minnesota's was the first R&D credit statute in the country, as far as we know, and they did not go, Minnesota created its own version of a research and development credit by selectively selecting some definitions. It could have said, as California did, that you start with the, I'll cover this in our brief somewhere here, uh, our November 14th brief, page 12, note 8, California started with the federal computation, said compute the compute the credit just as the federal government computes it, and then it tweaked it to achieve the, its economic developments in California in particular. Minnesota did not do that. Well, Minnesota so my, went its own my way. My question is, I think, a little bit different. So your <clears throat> argument, if we get to ambiguity, is that the minimum base amount, that the purpose is to expand economic development, and so the minimum base amount cuts against that. It does. And I get that point, but isn't the purpose of the federal research and development credit to also, at a United States level or national level, also to increase economic development? And if that's the case, wouldn't the minimum base amount cut against that interest as well? I just don't see how that, necess that purpose necessarily helped us resolve this issue. Is well, I, th I think the, the, the credit in the state concept, in the, in the state context, has a different dynamic because you're looking at the 50 states of the United States, the federal uh, credit would not be addressing that dynamic. <clears throat> and we're trying to attract jobs and, and economic development to Minnesota and away from other states. And what that minimum base does is encourage our companies locally to look around in adjoining states. And we have General Mills, a worldwide company. 
We have other companies like this. It encourages them to look around and say, okay, where, what are the favorable credit provisions in the other states? You don't want to do that. You want to have a credit system that rewards economic development here, and the minimum base works against that. And the irony is the local companies that are already doing research here, they should be your prime target for increasing economic development. It's harder to pull somebody in and get them here to start, uh, you know, afresh, start anew, than it is to get an existing company to increase. So the state's position is really anti-economic development. Council, back on uh, <coughs> Internal Revenue Code 41C, I don't, do you have the uh, do you have the, the code provision in front of you? Uh -oh. or maybe you've memorized it. I always take it around with me, Justice yes. Lillehout. I'm never without it. So I'd like to direct your attention to 41C3C, which deals with maximum fixed base percentage. 41C, right, maximum fixed base percentage. Now, you, you discussed a few moments ago that limitations are not part of a definition. This appears to me, 41C3C, to be a limitation on the fixed base percentage. Well, it's clearly that particular is, that a, is it a limitation? Um, it, in a sense, it's a limitation. But it's a limitation that's part of the definition within 41C1, right. C, uh, right? Correct. So if, if that limitation in 41C3 is part of the definition, then why isn't the limitation in 41C2? Well, C3... It, it, the issue is, is C2 a limitation on C1? There's C2 no, is definitely a limitation on C1. But it, it it's not a limitation on C1. C2 is a completely independent calculation. It has nothing to do with the C1 base amount. It has nothing to do with the concept of increasing uh, credits. Um, C3 is lodged in the fixed base percentage, and... You're right, it's embedded in, in the definition of fixed base percentage. There's no issue about whether it's in the definition or out. It's, it's in there. So we're not presented with an issue of is this a limitation that's within the definition. It's there. If you contrast that with our present issue, which is C1 independently stating the definition and, <coughs> and C2, the minimum base amount, which is completely separate computation. You need to know the, the base amount before you can even apply the C2. Uh, the limitation in 41C3C, that generally helps the taxpayer, doesn't it? It would generally help the taxpayer. And in, the limitation in C2 would generally hurt the taxpayer. In Minnesota's system, yes, it would hurt the taxpayer. So I'm trying to figure out what the principled reason is why one limitation which helps the taxpayer is part of the definition, and one limitation which hurts the taxpayer is not part of the definition. Well, I, the way I would look at this is that to the extent that the minimum base acts as a limitation on the amount of the federal, uh, on the amount of the credit available to taxpayers under the federal system, and it does appear from what we can see 
to be just a fiscal limitation for the federal government. Minnesota has achieved that a different way. We don't offer the same rates as the federal government does. Federal government offers 20% of the, the uh, a 20% rate. Minnesota's ha has, a, has a graduated uh, system. For the first two million, it's now 10%. And after that, <clears throat> it's 2.5%. And it, through time, it has varied, but there's always been that difference. So to the extent that the federal minimum base amount is meant to just be a fiscal control, Minnesota simply achieves it a different way. So it, it's not a minimum-maximum dichotomy. They're for different purposes. Council, getting back to the Minnesota statute that just generally incorporates uh, 41C, the same statute shows that the legislature really knew how to pinpoint um, these subdivisions when it when it wanted to. For example, um, subdivision four has a pin more pinpointed site, refers to 41F2, and subdivision five um, has a more pinpointed site. It just seems to me that when this is the base amount is a calculation, right? It just seems to me when the, there are all these definitions in uh, 41C that affect that base amount, it makes sense that the legislature just said 41C. Well, first, <coughs> the, the reference to the definition in 41C includes the specific reference that Your Honor has in mind. They've done it differently in other subdivisions, maybe that just suited their purpose <coughs> in those subdivisions. But it is not part of the base amount computation. Minimum base amount is not part of a one single computation. There are two computations. The base amount is computed, and after you've gotten all that all done, then the minimum base is computed and applied. So they're not one and the same. And the use of the term definition signals that the legislature intended the base amount definition in 41C. Council, um, this may be plowing over ground already plowed, um, but I'm just wondering if you look to the tax court or uh, tax court order directly, where did the tax court go wrong? If you can summarize that in a very brief way. Well, the tax court went right when it rejected all the state's arguments. It went wrong when it adopted a dictionary approach that was, had not been briefed by the, by the parties. Uh, it selected a definition from Black's Law Dictionary. There were three alternatives in there, and that's at page six, 16 of our November 14th brief. And first of all, it chose alternative definitions to aid its analysis. In, to, to conclude that the C1 definition was a definition, it selected the third meaning in blacks to set forth the meaning of. Great, everybody agrees with that. Then the court skipped to the second definition, which is to fix or establish parens, boundaries, or limits to conclude that the minimum base must, must be in the definition too. But the court selected an anomalous, out-of-context definitions. See, definitions are contextual. That's why you see three alternatives there. If one fit all, you wouldn't see that. If you look back in blacks to a time when 
they didn't have such truncated definitions. We show this on page 18 of our November 14th brief. It says, to define with respect to space means to set or establish boundaries. Well, that particular alternative definition applies when the, the context naturally calls for a delineation of spaces and limits. That's not present here. The, the, this definition does not. So that in addition to using two alternative definitions, the tax court settled on the wrong ones. Thank you, counsel. Uh, uh, Mr. Pickert, you have five minutes. Please, the court, uh, Walter Pickard representing IBM. Let me first start out by saying there was some discussion about local companies, and maybe you don't think of IBM as a local company. It's headquartered in the state of New York. But IBM spent $178 million here in 2011 in research. They're a very substantial Minnesota research company. It's the fifth or sixth largest center for research in IBM in the United States. Now, um, let me address some of the questions that came up. Um, uh, Justice Alilahog asked about the 16% and how to distinguish that from the um, minimum base percentage. I think the way you distinguish that is by looking at the language, as we always do, we look at the language of the statute. And uh, the federal statute in, in C3 starts out, except as otherwise provided in this paragraph. That's the very first clause. And what's otherwise provided in this paragraph is um, capital C, the maximum fixed base percentage. So it's right in that paragraph, and the language of the statute says except as otherwise provided. So it's picked up. Help, help me out. I'm not quite following you. I have C41, C3, fixed base percentage. Go to A. And then I, then I go to A. Except it's otherwise provided in this paragraph. Uh huh. Well, the maximum is otherwise providing in this paragraph. So it's part of the fixed base percentage. So you're saying um, three... 41C3 is a paragraph. Yes. Entirely, okay. Yeah. So it is expressly otherwise provided in this paragraph. When you look at C1, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say expressly, except as otherwise provided in this paragraph, or in this clause C. It doesn't say that either. Um, if Well, it wouldn't say that because um, number two is not part of paragraph one. No. And if Congress which wanted... Which is, I suppose, the point you're making. That's exactly the point. If Congress wanted that to be part of the definition, they would have put it in one. And maybe they would have started out except as otherwise provided in this paragraph, but they didn't. And, and one is a definitional term. Uh, Justice Gilday asked about the, the rule of construction. I don't know the name for this rule of construction. Maybe it doesn't have a name. But, but um, Mr. Muck made the point that the, the term base amounts in quotes. And then it says means. Base amount, quote, quote, means. That's how the Internal Revenue Code defines a term. And if you just look in 40, Section 41 alone, 41B1 says the term qualified research expenses, in quotes, means. 42B2A says in-house research expenses, in quote, means. There's but, five or six examples of that right in Section 41. But then why didn't the Minnesota legislature say, we want to incorporate the definition of base amount in 41C1? 
It didn't do that. It said C in general. So, yes, and that's a good point, but we know for a fact that it didn't incorporate other paragraphs in, or other in C. We know, for example, it didn't incorporate C5, the alternative simplified credit. The tax court actually held that, that C5 wasn't incorporated. So some, some are incorporated and some are not. Not everything in C comes into Minnesota law. The difference is- Do you know what is, case the, the tax court didn't? Pardon? Do you know the name of the case? It's this case. In C5? Yeah, it says C5 is not part of the, yeah, it's right in this case. Yeah. So, um, so not everything in C is incorporated. And uh, what is incorporated are things that are necessary or relevant uh, to the definition in one. So the fixed base percentage has to be incorporated because you can't mathematically do one without a fixed base percentage. But to follow up uh, on Justice Gilday's question to your uh, co-counsel, I guess, I don't know what you would call it in this case. If this is ambiguous and the statute is ambiguous, what can't the canons of construction would you well as I said I don't know the name for it yeah. <laughs> but but when you look at other provisions of the Internal Revenue Code when they define a term it goes in quotes and then it says means the term base amount quote-unquote means that's consistent throughout section 41 and it's consistent throughout the Internal Revenue Code and that's what we see in C1 C2 is a is a limitation that really applies when you get to 41A, uh, the actual computation is of the there credit. Anything in the, is there anything in the legislative history or anything outside the statutes that would tell us what the legislature had in mind? Did they no. talk about the minimum you know, base amount one way or the other? Yeah, no, I mean, an effort was made to determine the legislative history. This came in in, I think, 82, and the tapes just don't exist. What about so, the presumption that we construe tax statutes in favor of the taxpayer. That would be a, a good one to use. <laughs> well, it's just surprising to me that the lawyers for the taxpayers aren't pushing that. Well, we don't think it's ambiguous. You know, we don't think, we think that it's not, it's clearly not part of the definition and, and it's not ambiguous. And Your it, red light's on. Do we have more questions? Sorry, go one, ahead. One note. Well, I so, gotta ask him. Okay. Go ahead, Justin. Okay. Well, I loved your analogy about green in, in your brief. Oh, yes. Um, but, but I got to say that, to me, that, that didn't seem exactly right because those definitions were dramatically different from each other. You said green could mean an inexperienced person or it could mean somebody who's really environmentally friendly. When I look at the Black's Law def Dictionary definitions of define, they seem very much more nuanced to me. And especially if you, you know, if you go with the current version, which doesn't separate the one out by geography. I mean, to me, it seems like we're trying to figure out what does base rate mean? And we know that the legislature says it means what what, let's say what's relevant, it didn't say what's relevant in 41C, but to me that seems like a really common sense way of reading um, these nuanced <clears throat> definitions of defined with the, what the legislature told us. Yeah. I see my time is up, can I? So, so. I had to compliment you on your. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so. The question came about where the tax court go wrong. That's where the tax court did go wrong. It, it said the definition of define 
for paragraph, um, uh, for the first paragraph in the Minnesota statute. Yeah, for, for define, for, for, oh, in the Minnesota, in the federal statute, C1, define means set forth the meaning of, which I think that's the most obvious thing, based on means, set forth the meaning of. And then when he got to C2, which is a limitation provision, he said, well, define can also mean limit. Usually you think of that in terms of like a geographical space, I'm going to define this space. But the court has held that even when a word is used twice in a statute, and the word define is used only once here, in, but even when it's used more than once, it ought to have the same meaning consistently throughout the statute. And so that's where I would say the tax court went wrong. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Ms. Tien? Yes. It's your turn. Ms. <laughs> Good morning. May it please the court and counsel. My name is Wendy Tian, and I represent the Commissioner of Revenue in both these cases. Before I respond to some of the points made by my esteemed counsel, I'd like to uh, make some initial remarks of my own. First, as an initial matter, and can everybody hear me okay? I've been told I have a big voice, so. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to say the tax court reached the right result when it held the Minnesota statute incorporates the minimum base amount limitation set forth in section 41C2 of the Internal Revenue Code. And I'm gonna shorten up and use some acronyms here, IRC for Internal Revenue Code. Uh, the Minnesota statute says base amount means base amount as defined in section 41C of the IRC. And this is a very straightforward statement a reasonable and common sense interpretation of the statute that's evident from its face is that the Minnesota statute incorporates all the parts of IRC section 41C that are necessary to calculate the base amount for federal purposes. And when I say that, I mean it's a methodology, it's a formula, essentially. Because there, IRC section, I, yes? Is there anything in Minnesota statutes that tell us that sub uh, 41C4 doesn't apply, the alternative incremental credit? Your Honor, thank you for your question. If you look at IRC section 41C4, it's, um, I'm just gonna turn to it right here. It's the election of the alternative incremental credit. And um, at the tax court level, the, the parties had uh, litigated this issue, and the I, General Mills and IBM had raised this issue before the tax court and claimed that they were entitled to use this alternative incremental credit to calculate the amount of R&D credit they were entitled to for Minnesota purposes. And the tax court determined they were not because IRC section 41C4 wasn't incorporated into, um, IRC, into the Minnesota statute. And the reason for that is IRC section 41C4 doesn't reference the base amount. It's 
set forth within IRC Section 41C, but it doesn't reference the base amount at all. So there's nothing in Minnesota statutes that explicitly says we're not going to use either the alternatives in 4 or 5. It's just the interpretation of uh, 290.068 subdivision 2C. That's correct, Your Honor. When you look at the plain language of subdivision 2C, it says base amount and 41C. And when you look at section 41C4, and you didn't mention 41C5, but also 41C5, both of those sections, when you read them thoroughly, only address, well, they are set forth within 41C, but they have nothing to do with the calculation of the base amount, nor do they in any form reference the base amount. I would characterize them as orphan statutes. They are, for reasons I have no idea, um, and, I, and I wouldn't purport to fathom what the what Congress was thinking when they dropped them in there. They're set forth for some reason in 41C, but they have nothing to do with the calculation of the base amount. Counsel, just a couple concerns about your argument. I mean, the statute, the Minnesota statute doesn't say base amount as calculated in 41C. It That's says right. means, and it, it just seems to me that there's an ambiguity here, because it could be as you say, it could be as they say. And so then we have this overarching principle that we construe ta tax statutes in favor of the taxpayer. So help me work through, if we conclude there's an ambiguity, why does the commissioner still prevail? Okay, well, I'm getting there, Your Honor. And if I could just say, um, although I, I am aware of the presumption of construing tax statutes in favor of the taxpayer, there is also a canon, well, maybe I shouldn't call it a canon, but there is also a principle enumerated in several cases, I believe Helvering is a longstanding case that says um, deductions and I would also argue credits are a matter of legislative grace. So, um, so they, sort of they sort of offset each other. So because section 41C doesn't set forth a definition as such, it doesn't say definitions or it doesn't say defined, let me just walk the court through what it means by defined. Um, the way IRC section 41C provides for the definition of the base amount is by providing for the determination of the base amount. And this is a, a two-part, a mandatory two-part process. The first part of this process is setting forth the product of two components. Um, and then requiring the second part, the second mandatory part of this process, is requiring that amount, that product, to exceed 50% of qualified research expenditures. So again, it's a two-part process. The first part is obtaining the product of the fixed base percentage, which is set forth in IRC section 41C3, and average annual gross receipts in the preceding four-year period. So, Council, what do you think of um, Mr. Pickert's argument, uh, which I think we can call the canon that has not, has not yet been named? Okay. The no-name no canon? The no-name canon. <laughs> Isn't that the, really the whole statute canon? I mean, he's just looking at other parts of the statute, and he's saying, look how they do it over there. You need to, to construe this part the same way. She just named the canon. <laughs> the look over there canon? I, 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 my question is a little more specific. I think what he's referring to is the fact that um, quotation marks have some kind of meaning 
because quotation marks are used with base amount in C1, but they're not used with base amount in C2. Well, Your so Honor. Maybe, maybe that is having, comparing one part of the statute to another. Maybe it is the whole statute can. Well, Your Honor, I'm looking. We named it. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, Your Honor. Your Honor, I'm looking at subdivision 2C in the Minnesota statute, and base amount is only used the first time. It says, quote, base amount in quotation marks, but it doesn't use quotation marks again the second time. It just uses them the first time. It doesn't say, quote, base amount means, quote, base amount as defined in section 41C. Yeah, but I, I think his, his argument is that you have to look at 41C, which is incorporated or referenced, and then C1 uses base amount in quotations and C2 does not. And I think he's inferring from that then the, the, second, the second subpart is not part of the definition. I mean, I, I take his point, Your Honor, but I, I have a hard time believing the Minnesota legislature meant to no, be we're that We're not talking about the Minnesota legislature. We're talking about Congress in the, in the Internal Revenue Code. I, th I think that's his argument. He can clarify it the oh. next time we hear from him. Okay, Your Honor, I, I take his point, but um, when, the Minnesota, when, the, when Congress set forth the calculation of the base amount, in 41C2, it uses, it uses the words, in no event shall, and it sets forth a mandatory limitation subsequently on the calculation of the base amount. In 41C2, you cannot proceed with the use of the base amount without subjecting it to that limitation. So even though I take Mr. Pickard's point concerning these quotation marks, I think they are superseded by this language, in no event shall the base amount, as calculated in 41C1, shall the amount in 41C1 be less than 50% of the qualified research expenditures for the year. I, I don't think the use of the quotation marks in 41C1 I don't think that can supersede that in no event language in 41C2, which is mandatory. Is there, is there any information in the kind of how the legislation was drafted, what the Minnesota was legislature was thinking when they used the word defined, or is there any canon of construction that would say when the Minnesota legislature used the word defined, they mean how Congress, in, how Congress says defined? I mean, it seems like we're conflating two issues here. Uh, in Mr. Pickard's argument, that he's taking an ire, how the Internal Revenue Code defines things for, for purposes of Congress and imputing that into the mind of the Minnesota legislature. I, but is there any rule that would say that that's how we should interpret how the Minnesota legislature is acting? Your Honor, there is no available legislative history that I could identify, but I do refer to a case in my brief, I believe it's Griffin versus I, I think it's Oceanic Contractors or something along that line, that does say that when interpreting federal statutes, federal law should control. And um, I am not aware, however, of any legislative history um, with respect to these statutes because they were enacted so long ago. Um, but I would like to say, though, that coming back but to that, me... But that, that principle stands for when you're interpreting a federal statute, not when you're interpreting a state statute. That's a different situation, right? Yes. That is, that is correct, Your Honor. But coming back to Minnesota, there is no evidence from the text of the statute or from the surrounding portions of this statute, from Section 290.068, Subdivision 2, or any other portions of it that suggest that the method for calculating the base amount for Minnesota purposes is any different than the method for calculating it for federal purposes. Uh, the statute simply states that the base amount is the base amount 
as defined in Section 41C. Since both steps are required for federal purposes, both Part 1, obtaining the product, and Part 2, determining 50% of QREs for that year and comparing them against each other, <clears throat> there are no indicators whatsoever that you can omit the second step of the process for Minnesota purposes. There's no language to that effect in the text of the Minnesota statute, and there's no reason that that second step should be omitted for Minnesota purposes. What do you make of um, the company's argument that if this is ambiguous, we should look to the purpose of the statute, and the purpose of the statute is to expand economic development for Minnesota companies, and the, incorporating the minimum base amount would run counter to that. Well, thank you for your question, Your Honor. I, I did take Mr. Muck's point that the statute does have an incremental purpose, and the commissioner argued the same thing, because it is true. It is a credit for increasing research activities. But that doesn't mean that just because the statute is intended to reward increases in research that the Minnesota legislature cannot nonetheless set some limitations on the amount of, or set some floor that a taxpayer is still required to satisfy before that taxpayer is, in, is entitled to obtain that credit. I mean, the legislature is entitled to set whatever parameters it wants on establishing a minimum amount of research necessary. It is a legislative prerogative. And I take, that's a, a well taken point. The, I think the other part of the argument that he was making is that the Minnesota statute has a different dynamic because Minnesota is competing with other states as opposed to the federal government, which I also think is intending to do economic development, but that at a national level, there's something different about a state statute from the national statute. Any, I mean, if, if not, that's fine, but any insights into your, or your response to that argument? Your Honor, every state has different legislative priorities concerning scientific research and the amount of effectively a credit, such as this type of tax credit. In fact, between these years, 2010 and 2012, this particular tax credit was made refundable, which is why we're here. Prior to this, there weren't any challenges to the operation of the statute, even though, other than the refundable nature of it, it remained in its same form for, I would say, about at least 18 years. It may have been longer. Um, but due to the refundable nature of the credit, it was actually money out of the state's pocket, right? And because it's money out of the state's pocket, and because that's true for many other states as well, the state has to consider carefully what kind of priority this takes in competition with other types of legislative priorities. So every state has different types of priorities, and so what the Minnesota research credit looks like is not necessarily the same as what other states' credits looks like. So it's not necessarily profitable to compare the Minnesota credit to another state's credit, such as California or Illinois or the federal credit. They're all different, and many of them look dramatically different from each other. In fact, as I believe Mr. Muck pointed out, the Minnesota credit isn't really that similar to the federal credit other than having borrowed the concept of the base amount and certain definitions like qualified research expenditures. They're pretty different from each other. So I don't think it's particularly useful to compare the two to each other. Council, um, both, uh, I had dialogue with both Mr. Muck and Mr. Pickard about 
41C3C, which is the 16% cap on the fixed base percentage. Um, do you think the fact that apparently both uh, General Mills and IBM concede, in fact, want 41C3C to be part of the definition, does that, which way does that cut? I think it supports the state's contention, Your Honor. Why? Because it is a limitation that's incorporated into the definition. And the fact is, as Your Honor pointed out during Mr. Muck's discussion, 41.3.C.3 is a limitation that actually benefits the taxpayer because it sets a maximum amount of fixed base percentage. Um, I should point out that... But Mr. Picker was listening to my dialogue with Mr. Muck, and then he came back and said, aha, 41C3A says except as otherwise provided in this paragraph, so it's, it's really part of a definition, it's not a limitation. Do you, do you have any reaction to that argument? Not particularly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a limitation that's part of a definition, but... And your argument is C2 is a limitation that's part of the definition of yes, C1. Yes, it's also part of the definition, Your Honor. I mean, 41C encompasses all the parts of the base amount that are necessary to calculate the base amount. And that includes both the in general portion, which is the first step of determining the base amount, and 41C2, which sets a mandatory floor on the amount of the base amount. There's no way for federal purposes to determine whether the base amount is the amount in 41C1 or some lesser amount, which is that 50% of QREs. And there is no textual suggestion in the Minnesota statute that it should be any other amount. I would also like to point out that both Mr. Muck and Pickard don't contend there is any ambiguity in the statute. It says base amount and 41C. And so to the extent that the statute, the Minnesota statute, refers to 41C and the base amount, all portions of IRC section 41C that concern the base amount, so it excludes 41C4 and 5, are incorporated into the Minnesota statute. And we're just talking about essentially a computational formula. There are differences between the calculation of the base amount for Minnesota purposes and for federal purposes, and those follow in section in, in subdivision 2C of the Minnesota statute. They have to do with the types of inputs that go into the calculation of the base amount. And so, Counsel, the state's position is 41C is in, incorporated entirely with the exception of um, 4 and 5. Paragraphs That's correct, Your Honor. And so this may be more relevant for your next argument, but does it also incorporate 7, the definition of gross receipts? And refreshing, if, do, you have the, uh, do you have 41C in front of you? Well, or, Your Honor, the definition of gross receipts is modified explicitly by the Minnesota statute for purposes of the calculation of the Minnesota, it's of, for the Minnesota um, and credit, I understand the Minnesota base amount. You have a separate argument on that, but would you concede that 41C7 is incorporated in the legislature's reference to as defined in section 41C? No, Your Honor. 
Oh, so your position is seven is out. Well, I thought you said only four and five were out. Yes, it's not. I'm sorry. I have a I have a, a apparently incorrect uh, or updated version of the statute here that has it listed as four as four sub as 41 C six, but no, because it's for. I'm looking at the 2010 statute, which is this, which was applicable at the time. Oh yes, no, it is incorporated because it talks about reducing the gross receipts by returns and allowances. So yes, it is, it is incorporated. Well, I'm looking at the uh, 41C, which has a paragraph seven that says, for purposes of this subsection, gross receipts for any taxable year shall be reduced by returns and allowances, and then makes reference to foreign corporations. Are we on the same page? Oh, I think I'm just looking at a, at a different version of the statute. What version are you looking at? Yeah, I'm looking at the current version of the statute. I'm sorry. But it's the former version that's applicable in this yes. case. Yes. Council, right. I think you had a footnote in your brief where you, you acknowledged that 6 and 7 were applicable to the base, the base amount definition. Yes, that's right, Your Honor. But to the extent that... To the extent that the gross, the aggregate gross receipts term for Minnesota purposes is to be consistent with the Minnesota and average annual gross receipts term, I guess it would not be. Okay, about that in a, in a moment. That's right. Okay. <laughs> We've sort of artificially separated the argument. I guess I'm trying to... How do, I, how do I explain this? Um, yes, it is incorporated for purposes of the reduction by returns and allowances, but not to the extent that it's inconsistent. Am I making myself clear? Is the part of seven that refers to foreign corporations incorporated in no. the Minnesota statute? No, Your Honor. So half of seven is incorporated and half of seven is not. That's right, Your Honor. Interesting. Because it would be inconsistent. But I don't think that is something that is before the court today, or at least the parties have not placed it before the court. Anything else on base amount and the base amount issue? The minimum base issue? All right, we'll call you back after we have rebuttal. All right, thank you. Uh, so Mr. Muck, you're doing the rebuttal on the minimum base issue? You have 10 minutes. We've looked at the use of quotation marks in connection with definitions. And I would point out to the court that when you look at section 290.068 subdivision 2C, quote, base amount, end quote, means base amount as defined in 41C. Then you move to 41C, the only time base amount appears in quotes is in C1. That's consistent with C1 being the intended definition. Point number two, council refers to the um, minimum base. Yeah, but before you leave that point, um, 
41C3C, which deals with the 16% cap, that doesn't put the, the phrase fixed base percentage in quotation marks either. 41C3. 41C3. It's because it's, it's not part of the definition. It's a limitation on the definition. Exactly. Your, your, your argument is 41C1 has the quotation marks, 41C2 does not, right? That's part of the argument. Part of the, that's part of the argument in quest of the ultimate objective of isolating what the definition the legislature intended was. But in 3, which defines fixed base percentage, it doesn't put fixed base percentage in quotation marks. And going further down to 3C, the 16% limitation, that doesn't have quotation marks either. So what are we to infer from the fact that one term happens to have quotation marks, the other one doesn't? And one section says means and the other one doesn't. Well, means is a critical term as well. But isn't, I think the point just Little Hug's making, isn't subdivision C3 also defining fixed base percentage? And that doesn't use the word means or quotes. So this argument that they are, the Internal Revenue Code always uses quotes and the word means to define things. How do you square that with the definition of fixed base percentage? He said it better than I did. Well, the, the, the definition I see in 3C, 3C1 is the term base amount. But there's sorry, also a definition C3. of fixed base percentage yep. in C3, in C3, C3 that doesn't use quotation marks or means. So I'm just wondering if the principle that is, you're articulating the holds term up. is is used instead of means. But I thought the IRC used the word means when they're it, defining something. It frequently does, but is is also a definitional indicator as well. But that's the definition of fixed base percentage. The state uses the um, minimum base amount and refers to it as an alternative in part of the uh, base amount calculation. The minimum base amount is not part of that calculation. The base amount is calculated first upon a different concept of measuring the increase over research in a past period. The minimum base amount is an entirely different cap on the, um, on the credit, a cap that Minnesota has effectively uh, placed on our credit by using lower rates. Federal's 20%, our rates are significantly less. And is that just your speculation or is there, I mean, you're clearly correct on the facts, but the speculation about that the legislature was thinking of, of trading off the minimum base amount cap for a 10% and 2.5% cap? It's, it's, it's a speculation in the sense that we look for a reasonable explanation for the lower rates um, and that's the one that emerges. Council, um, I asked you about 41C3C, which was the 16% cap. Right after that, there's a, there's a, I guess you'd call it subsection D, which deals with rounding. And it says when you get a percentage, you have to round up or down to the nearest one hundredth of 1%. Is that rounding provision part of the definition of fixed base percentage? In other words, is a cal can a calculation be part of a definition? 
I'm looking for 41 again here. And I went pretty fast, sir. I'll, I'll direct you to the particular again. Yeah, give me the particular. Okay, so we're in IRC 41C. And it's paragraph 3, sub D. You see where it says rounding? Yes. So that seems to say you come to a number and then you do a calculation. Is that calculation part of the definition of fixed base percentage? If it's relevant to determining the fixed base percentage number, I would say it is. Okay. Thank you. Ms. Teen referred to a rule that deductions, credits, are a matter of legislative grace. Same argument was made in the capital equipment cases that we refer to in our um, tax court briefs. But the court there recognized, again, that the fundamental purpose of interpreting statutes is to achieve the intention of the legislature. And that supersedes some of the other rules. They're not applicable in all circumstances. Fundamentally, achieve the, the uh, purpose of the legislature. The state's interpretation does not do that. So your argument is that any, whenever we're interpreting the research and development tax credit, whether in this case or another case, and there's ambiguity, we should always interpret it in favor of expanding the tax credit. It should always advance the legislative purpose of creating economic development for the state which means we would give more money to taxpayers. We'd interpret it in favor of taxpayers. Well, yes, more money to taxpayers. That's ultimately a legislative judgment. No, no, I How understand that. But the principle that you're articulating, though, is that when there's ambiguity in this R&D tax credit, we should interpret it in favor of taxpayers, not just because of the canon that the chief referred to, but also because the purpose is to provide more research and development, economic development to achieve economic development, which is a legislative judgment. It's not up to the commissioner to decide how much credit is too much. But, That's but counsel, the legislature's judgment. I, I think judgment. Mr. T Ms. Tian's broader point was that the legislature might also, as a matter of wanting to increase uh, research and development, put some limits on that, that that's, that isn't necessarily, you know, no holds barred. And so what, what's your response to that, that, and that C2 does that? or helps to do that. C2 limits the federal credit. It right. lowers the cost of the federal government. But the lower rates that Minnesota has achieve the same thing. That's the trade-off. That's the difference between the Minnesota system and the federal system. That's why the Minnesota legislature isolated the definition in 41C, and the definition is found only in C1. We're good, Council, on the minimum base issue. Thank you very much.